Thank you so much for joining me today. We are going to be reading chapter 23 in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter 23 School days went along. Some were made up of meanness, brutality, and heartbreak. Others were bright and beautiful because of Miss Burnstone and Mr. Morton. And always, there was the magic of learning things. Francie was out walking one Saturday in October, and she chanced on an unfamiliar neighborhood. Here were no tenements or raucous, shabby stores. There were old houses that had been standing there when Washington maneuvered his troops across Long Island. They were old and decrepit, but there were picket fences, and around them with gates on which Francie longed to swing. There were bright fall flowers in the front yard, and maple trees with crimson and yellow leaves on the curb. The neighborhood stood old, quiet, and serene in the Saturday sunshine. There was a brooding quality about the neighborhood, a quiet, deep, timeless, shabby peace. Francie was as happy as though, like Alice, she had stepped through a magic mirror. She was in an enchanted land. She walked on further and came to a little school. Its old bricks glowed garnet in the late afternoon sun. There was no fence around the schoolyard, and the school grounds were grass and not cement. Across from the school, it was practically open country, a meadow with goldenrod, wild asters, and clover growing in it. Francie's heart turned over. This was it. This was the school she wanted to go to. But how could she get to go there? There was a strict law about attending the school in your own district. Her parents would have to move to that neighborhood if she wanted to go to that school. Francie knew that Mama wouldn't move just because she felt like going to another school. She walked home slowly, thinking about it. She sat up that night waiting for Papa to come home from work. After Johnny had come home whistling his Molly Malone as he ran up the steps, after all had eaten of the lobster, caviar, and liverwurst that he brought home, Mama and Neely went to bed. Francie kept Papa company while he smoked his last cigar. Francie whispered all about the school in Papa's ear. He looked at her, nodded, and said, We'll see tomorrow. You mean we can go move near that school? No, but there has to be another way. I'll go there with you tomorrow, and we'll see what we can see. Francie was so excited she couldn't sleep the rest of the night. She was up at seven, but Johnny was still sleeping soundly. She waited in perspiration of impatience. Each time he sighed in his sleep, she ran in to see if he was waking up. He woke about noon, and the Nolans sat down to dinner. Francie couldn't eat. She kept looking at Papa, but he made her no sign. 
Had he forgotten? Had he forgotten? No, because while Katie was pouring the coffee, he said carelessly, I guess me and the prima donna will take a little walk later on. Francie's heart jumped. He had not forgotten. He had not forgotten. She waited. Mama had to answer. Mama might object. Mama might ask why. Mama might say she guessed she'd go along too. But all Mama said was, All right. Francie did the dishes. Then she had to go down to the candy store to get the Sunday paper, then to the cigar store to get Papa a nickel Corona. Johnny had to read the paper. He had to read every column if it inclu- of it, including the society section, in which he couldn't possibly be interested. Worse than that, he had to make comments to Mama on every item he read. Each time he'd put the paper aside, turn to Mama and say, Funny things in the papers nowadays. Take this case. Francie would almost cry. Four o'clock came. The cigar had long since been smoked. The paper lay gutted on the floor. Katie, having tired of hearing the news, analyzed and had taken Neely and gone over to visit Mary Romilly. Francie and Papa set out hand in hand. He was wearing his only suit, the tuxedo and his derby hat, and he looked very grand. It was a splendid October day. There was a warm sun and a refreshing wind working together to bring the tang of the ocean around each corner. They walked a few blocks, turned a corner, and were in this other neighborhood. Only in a great sprawling place like Brooklyn could there be such a sharp division. It was a neighborhood peopled by fifth and sixth generation Americans, whereas in the Nolan neighborhood, if you could prove you had been born in America, it was equivalent to a Mayflower standing. Indeed, Francie was the only one in her classroom whose parents were American-born. At the beginning of the term, teacher called the roll and asked each child her lineage. The answers were typical. I'm Polish-American. My father was born in Warsaw. Irish-American. Me father and mother were born in County Cork. When Nolan was called, Francie answered proudly, I'm an American. I know you're an American, said the easily exasperated teacher, but what's your nationality? American, insisted Francie, even more proudly. Will you tell me what your parents are, or do I have to send you to the principal? My parents are American. They were born in Brooklyn. All the children turned around to look at the little girl whose parents had not come from the old country. And when teacher said, Brooklyn? Hmm, I guess that makes you American all right. Francie was proud and happy. How wonderful was Brooklyn, she thought, when just being born there automatically made you an American. Papa told her about this strange neighborhood, how its families had been Americans for more than a hundred years back, how they were mostly Scotch, English, and Welsh extraction. 
The men worked as cabinet makers and fine carpenters. They worked with metals, gold, silver, and copper. He promised to take Francie to the Spanish section of Brooklyn someday. There the men worked as cigar makers and each chipped in a few pennies a day to hire a man to read to them while they worked. And the man read fine literature. They walked along the quiet Sunday street. Francie saw a leaf flutter from a tree and she skipped ahead to get it. It was a clear scarlet with an edging of gold. She stared at it, wondering if she'd ever see anything as beautiful again. A woman came from around the corner. She was rouged heavily and wore a feather boa. She smiled at Johnny and said, Lonesome, mister? Johnny looked at her a moment before he answered gently, No, sister. Sure? she inquired archly. Sure, he answered quietly. She went her way. Francie skipped back and took Papa's hand. Was that a bad lady, Papa? she asked eagerly. No, but she looked bad. There are very few bad people. There are just a lot of people that are unlucky. But she was all painted and she was one who had seen better days. He liked the phrase. Yes, she may have seen better days. He fell into a thoughtful mood. Francie kept skipping ahead and collecting leaves. They came upon the school, and Francie proudly showed it to Papa. The late afternoon sun warmed its softly colored bricks, and the small paned windows seemed to dance in the sunshine. Johnny looked at it a long time, then he said, Yes, this is the school. This is it. Then, as whenever he was moved or stirred, he had to put it into a song. He held his worn derby over his heart, stood up straight, looking up at the schoolhouse, and sang, School days, school days, dear old golden rule days, reading and writing and arithmetic. To a passing stranger, it might have looked silly. Johnny standing there in his greenish tuxedo and fresh linen, holding the hand of a thin, ragged child and singing the banal song so unselfconsciously on the street. But to Francie, it seemed right and beautiful. They crossed the street and wandered in the meadow that folks called Lots. Francie picked a bunch of goldenrod and wild asters to take home. Johnny explained that the place had once been an Indian burying ground, and how, as a boy, he had often come there to hunt arrowheads. Francie suggested they hunt for some. They searched for half an hour and found none. Johnny recalled that as a boy, he hadn't found any either. This struck Francie as funny, and she laughed. Papa confessed that maybe it hadn't been an Indian cemetery after all. Maybe someone had made up that story. Johnny was more than right because he had made up the whole story himself. Soon it was time to go home and tears came into Francie's eyes because Papa hadn't said anything about getting her into the new school. 
he saw the tears and figured out a scheme immediately. Tell you what we'll do, baby. We'll walk around and pick out a nice house and take down the number. I'll write a letter to your principal saying you're moving there and want to be transferred to this school. They found a house, a one-story white one with a slanting roof and late chrysanthemums growing in the yard. He copied the address carefully. You know that what we are going to do is wrong, is it, Papa? But it's a wrong to gain a bigger good. Like a white lie? Like a lie that helps someone out. So you must make up for the wrong by being twice as good. You must never be bad or absent or late. You must never do anything to make them send a letter home through the mails. I'll always be good, Papa, if I can go to that school. Yes. Now I'll show you a way to go to school through a little park. I know right where it is. Yes, sir, I know right where it is. He showed her the park and how she could walk through it diagonally to go to school. That should make you happy. You can see the seasons change as you come and go. What do you say to that? Francie, recalling something her mother had once read to her, answered, My cup runneth over. And she meant it. When Katie heard of the plan, she said, Suit yourself, but I'll have nothing to do with it. If the police come and arrest you for giving a false address, I'll say honestly that I had nothing to do with it. One school's as good or as bad as another. I don't know why she wants to change. There's homework no matter what school you go to. It's settled then, Johnny said. Francie, here's a penny. Run down to the candy store and get a sheet of writing paper and an envelope. Francie ran down and ran back. Johnny wrote a note saying Francie was going to live with relatives at such and such an address and wanted a transfer. He added that Neely would continue living at home and wouldn't require a transfer. He signed his name and underlined it authoritatively. Trembling, Francie handed the note to her principal next morning. The lady read it, grunted, made out the transfer, transfer handed her her report card, and told her to go, that the school was too crowded anyhow. Francie presented herself and documents to the principal of the new school. He shook hands with her and said he hoped she'd be happy in the new school. A monitor took her to the classroom. The teacher stopped the work and introduced Francie to the class. Francie looked out over the rows of little girls. All were shabby, but most were clean. She was given a seat to herself and happily fell into the routine of the new school. The teachers and children here were not as brutalized as in the old school. Yes, some of the children were mean, but it seemed a natural child meanness and not a campaign. Often, the teachers were impatient and cross, but never nag naggingly cruel. There was no corporal punishment either. The parents were too American, too aware of the rights granted them by their constitution to accept injustices meekly. 
they could not be bulldozed and exploited as could the immigrants and the second-generation Americans. Francie found that the different feeling in this school came mostly from the janitor. He was a ruddy, white-haired man whom even the principal addressed as Mr. Jensen. He had many children and grandchildren of his own, all of whom he loved dearly. He was father to all children. On rainy days, when children came to school soaked, he insisted that they be sent down to the furnace room to dry out. He made them take off their wet shoes and hung their wet stockings on a line to dry. The little shabby, sh shabby shoes stood in a row before the furnace. It was pleasant down in the furnace room. The walls were whitewashed, and the big red-painted furnace was a comforting thing. The windows were as high up as the walls. Francie liked to sit there and enjoy the warmth and watch the orange and blue flames dancing an inch above the bed of small black coals. He left the furnace door open when the children were drying out. On rainy days, she left earlier and walked to school slower, that she, so she would be soaking wet and rate the privilege of drying in the furnace room. It was unorthodox for Mr. Jensen to keep the children out of class to dry, but everyone liked and respected him too much to protest. Francie heard stories around the school concerning Mr. Jensen. She heard that he had been to college and knew more than the principal did. They said he had married and when the children came had decided that there was more money in being a school engineer than in being a school teacher. Whatever it was, he was liked and respected. Once Francie saw him in the principal's office. He was in his clean striped overalls, sitting there with his knees crossed and talking politics. Francie heard that the principal often came down to Mr. Jensen's furnace room to sit and talk for a few moments while he smoked a pipe full of tobacco. When a boy was bad, he wasn't sent to the principal's office for a licking. He was sent down to Mr. Jensen's room for a talking to. Mr. Jensen never scolded a bad boy. He talked to him about his own youngest son, who was a pitcher on the Brooklyn team. He talked about democracy and good citizenship and about a good world where everyone did the best he could for the common good of all. After a talk with Mr. Jensen, the boy could be counted upon not to cause any more trouble. At graduation, the children asked the principal to sign the first page of their autograph book out of respect to his position, but they valued Mr. Jensen's autograph more, and he always got the second page to sign. The principal signed quickly in a great sprawling hand, but not Mr. Jensen. He made a ceremony out of it. He took the book over to his big roll-top desk and lit the light over it. He sat down, carefully polished his spectacles, and chose a pen. He dipped it in ink, squinted at it, wiped it off, and re-dipped it. Then he signed his name in a fine steel engraving script and blotted it carefully. His signature was always the finest in the book. If you had the nerve to ask him, he'd take the book home 
and ask his son, who was with the Dodgers, to sign it too. This was a wonderful thing for the boys. The girls didn't care. Mr. Jensen's handwriting was so wonderful that he wrote out all the diplomas by request. Mr. Morton and Miss Burnstone came to that school too. When they were teaching, Mr. Jensen would often come in and squeeze himself into one of the back seats and enjoy the lesson too. On a cold day, he'd have Mr. Morton or Miss Bornstone come down to his furnace room for a hot cup of coffee before they went on to the next school. He had a gas plate and coffee-making equipment on a little table. He served strong, hot, black coffee in thick cups, and these visiting teachers blessed his good, his good soul. Francie was happy in this school. She was very careful about being a good girl. Each day, as she passed the house whose number she claimed, she looked at it with gratitude and affection. On windy days, when papers blew before it, she went about picking up the debris and depositing it in the gutter before the house. Mornings after the rubbish man had emptied the burlet bag and had carelessly tossed the empty bag on the walk instead of in the yard, Francie picked it up and hung it on the fence, fence paling. The people who lived in the house came to look on her as a quiet child who had a queer complex about tidiness. Francie loved that school. It meant that she had to walk 48 blocks each day, but she loved the walk too. She had to leave earlier in the morning than Neely, and she got home much later. She didn't mind, except that it was a little hard at lunchtime. There were 12 blocks to come home and 12 to go back, all in the hour. It left little time for eating. Mama wouldn't let her carry a lunch. Her reason was, she'll be weaned away from her home and family soon enough the way she's growing up. But while she's still a child, she has to act like a child and come home and eat the way children should. Is it my fault that she has to go so far to school? Didn't she pick it out herself? But Katie, argued Papa, it's such a good school. Then let her take the bad along with the good. The lunch question was settled. Francie had about five minutes for lunch, just time enough to report home for a sandwich, which she ate walking on the way back. She never considered herself put upon. She was so happy in the new school that she was anxious to, anxious to pay in some way for this joy. It was a good thing that she got herself into this other school. It showed her that there were other worlds besides the world she had been born into, and that these other worlds were not unattainable. <laughs>